for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Got your Bibles, the book of Philippians, that's where we are. And uh, I did an introduction a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to add a little bit more to that introduction because we didn't complete it. Uh, but just to, just to start there, where it says, um, right at the beginning, this, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the elders and the deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I, I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for you, all with joy. For you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I'm certain that God, who began the work, good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it's right that I should feel, as I do about all of you, for you all have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favour of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. This morning we're looking at the subject under the the big banner of building a a kingdom culture of uh, a culture of love, grace and freedom. Now, it's interesting because this was going to occur a few weeks later in our series, but um, do you know, when I finished the last one, I thought, somehow, this isn't right, and then there were, we needed to do some change around with worship, etc., and God had his way and brought things into a different frame, because actually, love, grace, and freedom are the basis of everything that's going to flow out of this. So the messages that follow flow out of understanding a culture of love, grace and freedom as the people of God. And so the title that we have is this title of Building a Kingdom Culture. And if you remember, when I spoke a couple of weeks ago, we said it's like a picture frame, that when we do any sermon series, we have that title, and it kind of frames how we see things in the text at which we're looking. It doesn't necessarily change anything, it just changes the way the picture looks and what we see in the picture and perhaps what we miss at other times. So this time we're, we're framing it with that, that thought of we're building a kingdom culture. And over the last uh, several weeks and a couple of months, that's really gripped us as elders, it's really gripped me, what it means to, to build a kingdom culture. The church at Philippi had a particular culture about it. They, as Paul refers to them, were the citizens of heaven. They were a, col- that they were a colony of heaven upon earth. And in many ways, we are the same. We are a colony of heaven on earth in this place called Ashford. Hallelujah. We are part of a colony of heaven on earth. And Jesus taught us to pray, didn't he? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and Paul wants to write to them and encourage them and strengthen the culture that they're experiencing. And he realizes that there are some things that are coming into their culture that are in danger of, in, uh, of, 
of polluting it, for want of a better word, of, of taking them away from the culture that God wants to build. And we're going to pick up on that as time goes by over the next few, few weeks, and I don't want to steal anybody else's thunder on that one. But there was a culture that Paul was expecting within the nature of any of the churches that he wrote to, and certainly within the church of Philippians, that was to be different from the rest of the world. This wasn't another society. This wasn't another club. This wasn't some kind of religious group doing their own little thing. This was a colony of heaven on earth. And they were to impact the world in which they lived. But there's a big question, isn't there? What is, what is a culture? What actually is a culture? And we can define it in this way. It's the system of beliefs, disciplines, practices, relational boundaries that reveal how life is lived among a particular group of people. Anyone who has travelled will have discovered something of that. You go to another country. You, you perhaps go, as I have done, with all of my Britishness. And I go and, and I experience another country. And I find a different culture, the way they eat, the way they dress, the way they talk, the, the different values, and so on. You can also find it in your workplace. There will be different cultures depending on your business and what you're involved in, etc. There's certain cultures found in our workplaces. So every one of us in some way or other has experienced something of what culture is. Another way of putting it, it is a way of life of a group of people. The behaviours, the beliefs, the values and symbols that they accept generally without thinking about them. And they are passed on by communication, so teaching, by immersion, which is an important one. In other words, your involvement, your being within that culture, you absorb something of the culture. You spend enough time there, uh, you will experience, and that not only will you experience that culture, but it will get inside of you, and you will start living out that culture as well. Actually, that's a good principle for discipleship, and that's something else that can come on further on. But so by communication, by immersion, by imitation from one generation and to the next. But what's the big difference between uh, values and culture? Is there, is there any difference? Where, where are the differences over values and culture? Every culture, your business culture, where you work will have certain values. You go to another country, there will be values that shape that culture. They are the, the bedrock, the, the fabric to that culture, but they are not the culture itself. And we need to understand that. Culture, in order to understand this word, culture is a shared experience. It's a shared experience of a particular set of values, of what's deemed to be important. And so when you think of the Pharisees, for example, in the New Testament, theirs was a culture of law, of regulation, of judgment, and shamed obedience. That wasn't a good culture. And that can be a religious Christian culture. And that is not what we're talking about when it comes to the kingdom. We're talking about a kingdom culture. A value is not a value unless it is lived. We need to hear that because we can go through things like vision and values and we can say, these are our values as Gateway Church. But they are not our values unless they are lived. And the values that we discover in the Word of God are not our values unless they are lived by us as the people of God. They will simply be beliefs, ideas that we are sent to, and nothing more. So if we want to be the people of God, we have to move from value to culture. 
to it being our corporate experience together. Not just our individual experience, but our corporate experience together. We must remember that when Paul wrote his letters to New Testament churches, he wasn't writing to individuals. We so often think of it that he's writing to individuals. Oh, this is to me. But actually he's writing to a group of people. He's saying to a group of people, be filled with the Spirit. Not just to individuals. Individuals, yes, that's important. But be filled with the Spirit as a corporate community. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just as individuals, but as a corporate community. And in order to do that, we have to work it out. It has to be more than beliefs that are in our heads, but worked out through our relational experiences. And so a value is not a value unless it's lived. And when we live out and share those values together, we create culture. Amen? And we want a kingdom culture. And over the next few weeks, we're going to explore through the book of Philippians something of what a kingdom culture looks like. And Philippians won't give us all the answers, but it will give us some of them. The big question for you and I is this question. What kind of culture are you revealing? What kind of, you see, your marriage is meant to be a small example of the kingdom. Wow. Your family is meant to be a small example of the kingdom. Your community group is meant to be a small example of the kingdom. As a body of people, this is a a larger example of the kingdom. And when we talk about a kingdom, we talk about the king's reign. It talks about his authority. It talks about listening to his voice. It talks about values that come from the king himself. But there will only be values and ideas if we don't put them into practice. There will be beliefs that we assent to, and that's when you get religious. Because you start going through the motions and don't do the reality. So the big question is, what kind of culture are you revealing? And you'll find that When you go out today, you'll be given a card. And on the back of that card, there's some questions. And they're going to be the questions that you're going to be looking at uh, over the next few weeks in in the community groups. Very simple questions that drive home and challenge us as to what it means for us to live out kingdom culture individually, in our marriages, in our families, etc., in the world beyond. A kingdom culture is one that reveals the reality of God's reign. His presence, his love, his wisdom and activity in the different spheres of human experience. That's that's fantastic, isn't it? It's also very challenging. Because what does that look like where the rubber hits the road? So that's a bit more of an introduction. And as we look at this particular series, we're going to look at aspects of kingdom culture that come out as we look through this particular book. Now, they don't stand out immediately, because as I said a couple of weeks ago, this book is written quite differently to Paul's other letters, which tend to be theological and practical. This book is is a letter in its, what we might say, its purest form, where he he kind of just writes from the heart and he communicates and and he imagines them and and says things to them and he, he weaves in and out of his subjects. And so you'll find, as the preachers go through over the next few weeks, that, and, and the challenge for them is their messages are scattered through the book. Now, some books, you can find it in a few verses, nice and compact, unpack that. 
But in Philippians, it's the threads that run through this particular book. So here we are, some of the subjects we're going to be looking at, a culture of thanksgiving and prayer, as opposed to grumbling and complaining. Did you know that grumbling and complaint don't come from God, they come from below? Yeah? So we'll be looking at thanksgiving and prayer as opposed to grumbling and complaining. We'll be looking at honour and encouragement, seeing and valuing others as God sees them as opposed to a critical fault-finding spirit and constant negativity. We'll be looking at humility and servanthood as opposed to self-promotion, pride and a wanting to be served. That kind of, it's about interdependence rather than independence. We'll be looking at building a culture of faith and obedience as opposed to one of unbelief and cynicism and rebellion. If there's something that creeps into the church, it's cynicism. And that's a, that's a bad place to get. I've been there. And you start doubting and criticizing everything. We want a culture of faith. But not only of faith, it has to be a culture of faith and obedience where we put our faith into action. A culture of joy and praise. Should get our men to that one, shouldn't we? Eh? We want a culture of joy and praise as opposed to, what do you think I'm going to say? Your own pity party and a spirit of misery. Do you know, we Christians can be pretty good at that. Can't we? Yeah? Yeah? But that's not the culture of the kingdom. The culture of the kingdom is a culture of joy and praise. Yes, that is different. We're not muddling up what it is. We weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Yes, there's a place for that. But what we're talking about is a culture of joy and praise as to this continual world where we it seems to be a place of self-pity and a spirit of misery. And then it's a place of forgiveness and reconciliation as opposed to unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment and the result of that, separation. Breakdown in relationship. So it's about unity. It's a place where we'll be looking out for others as opposed to putting ourselves first. How we can serve. It's a place of transformation as opposed to, oh, this is the way I was made, therefore I can't help it, I can't change culture of transformation where we believe God has something bigger for each one of us. That he doesn't want to leave us as we are. He's a bigger God than that. He not only wants to save us, but he wants to transform us. It's also a culture of transformation in the sense of not holding the fort mentality, which is what I grew up with. Hold the fort for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Hurry up, Jesus. I'm not sure whether we can hold on much longer. No, we don't want that mentality. We want a mentality which understands that God is at work now and wants to work through us to bring his kingdom in in greater measure. It's a culture of love, grace and freedom. And we'll be touching on that in a moment as opposed to, to, to the opposite which is law and bondage and that kind of performance mentality. But remember, remember in all of this as we, we travel through this series, the intent isn't that the church might 
just be a society in itself, a, a nice, holy, happy people who just enjoy one another's company and sing a few nice songs and go home with a warm feeling at the end of the day only to go out into the world and bang, it hits you. Not meant to be like that. A people who are just merely waiting for Christ's return, but rather to use Jesus' terms and they, they come out in this book, we are to be a light to the world. We are to be a, a city set on a hill. We are to be sorting society. We are to be a people who hold forth the word of life. Brothers and sisters, God has given us something and he expects us to do something with it. And that will impact our homes and our workplaces, our neighbourhoods, etc. We are God's holy ones, his family, his colony of heaven under earth, on earth. And I'd really like you to grab that picture as we move into this series. We are a colony of heaven. And we represent the reign of God. What does that look like? How do we do it? How do we carry it out of here into our workplaces, into those environments which are so contrary to the spirit of Christ? How do we do that? They're things that we we want to think about. And one thing that I'm aware of when I, I study the scriptures, when I read this, is that God wants us to be big people. Not big in the world sense, of arrogant people, but big in the sense of knowing who God is and who God has made us to be. I grew up in a background which was what we call worm theology, where I'm just a little worm. I'm just this insignificant little bit of dirt that God's had mercy on and and just come to in some way or other. No, that is to, to denigrate the work of God. God made humans in his image. In his very likeness, he made them, both male and female. There's something stamped upon you and I as individuals. We are the pinnacle of his creation and we need to kind of resurrect that, the way God thinks about us. That is why Jesus came to die for us, because of who God had made us to be. But the devil would like to trample all over that and knock us down into the dirt and say we're nothing but some other animal form. Who are we, if you like, to rule the world? God wants big people. And he likes making big people out of small people, doesn't he? (laughs) Uh, Go back into your church history and read some of those people who knew who they were in God. I've just been reading about Abraham Kuyper, who probably nobody in here, I'd be surprised if anybody knows who Abraham Kuyper was. But he was a man who had little education in his early life. It was homeschooling, but he eventually became the the Prime Minister of Holland. And he founded a newspaper involved in all sorts of things. A great theologian. And you look at what that man accomplished in his life because he believed in God and he knew God had made, who, who God had made him to be and what he had called him to do. His confidence wasn't in himself but in God and in God's purposes. And he influenced a nation and his writings still influence people today. Amazing guy. And you can find all sorts of stories like that. Let me ask you this morning, how do you look at yourself It's a big question. Israel was 
had the land of promise right in front of them, right there for the taking. And they decide to send in 10 spies into that land, 12 spies into the land to check it out. That's not a bad idea. And so they come back with their reports. Ten negative reports, two good reports. And I look at the negative report and, and it's like they, they'd lost all sight of God completely. When they walked into the land, they said, wow, yeah, it's a good land. Yeah, some good stuff in there, but wow, there are some mighty giants in there. And do you know what? They made us feel like teeny-weeny little tiny grasshoppers. And what chance has a grasshopper got against a giant? Squished, just like that. There were two who had a good report. Oh yeah, they saw the difficulties. They saw the giants as well, but they saw God. And they knew his promise. And that they knew that one with God is a majority. And they could go in there and they could crush those giants. And they could squish them under their feet. They could take the kingdom for God. You see, God wants big people. But we can have small attitudes because we're not getting God's perspective on our life. And you know, God believes more about you than you do. (laughs) Isn't that staggering? God believes more about you than you do. If you're anything like me, you listen to the devil too much. And the devil suggests you're not much good. The devil suggests you can't do it. You can't pray for that sick person. You can't witness to that person. You can't do this or that. How dare you? God believes far bigger things for you than the devil does. It shocks me, really. I was thinking, I was talking about it to Pam, I think it was this morning or last night. I said, do you know, we believe a whole lot more about what Satan says to us than what God does. No wonder we are are such a mess at times. Because we're tuned in to the enemy rather than God. We listen to his whispers and he it takes us away from the Word. And the power of His Spirit, there's nothing like listening to the devil and feeling the strength going out your feet, is there? So here we are. God wants to make each one of us big people. Big people in Him. Doesn't matter where you start, where you're starting from, that's not the issue. It's who you're looking to, to, who you're trusting. Isn't it? And so we're looking at this, this culture of love and grace and, and freedom. And when you look at this book, it's it's where the good news is central to everything. And we need to learn to preach the good news to ourselves. It's one thing to share it with others, but we need to preach it to ourselves. When the devil's on your back, start preaching the good news to yourself and telling it to him as well. And I haven't got time to, to go into it. I'll give you the verses. You know, 1 verses 5, 7, 12, 16, 27, it's twice. Chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 4, verses, chapter four uh, verse 3 and verse 15. Good news, good news, good news, good news, good news. I like that. 
Don't you? You're not too sure. But good news. Brothers and sisters, God has come to us in Jesus. And Jesus has died for us. He has paid the price for all our sin. He lived, he died, he rose again, and he lives in heaven for us. Hallelujah. There's a man in the glory that represents you and represents me. And he's 100% for us. He's on your case. He's on my case. He's rooting for you and he's rooting for me. Amen? Amen. And we've got to believe that because that's the good news. There's a world out there that won't be rooting for you. There's a devil out there that won't be rooting for you. But God is. And that's the good news that we have in this book. It's the good news that's there through this book of Philippians. It's all over the place. And this good news is is rooted in the fact that God is love. It's rooted in the love of God. You you read this book, there's there's love all over it. There's love all the way through it. It permeates the book. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It starts with God. God is love. He commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, having no interest in him, rebelling against him, not wanting anything to do with him, God loves us and Jesus dies for us. That's amazing, isn't it? We tend to love conditionally. Show me that you're making some improvement, I'll love you. God didn't wait for that, thank goodness. He saw us in our lost estate, as bad, as bad as that was, and he loved us. He said, I love you. Wonderful. Amen? Amen. They're powerful words. The God of heaven, the holy God of heaven saying, I love you. And so God loves us. And in this book we discover the love of God. In this book we discover Paul loves them. And they love Paul. And there's love for one another. How important love is. It is is where we must start. But not based on, on the world's kind of love. Where we fall in love and we fall out of love. I feel like it this moment and I don't the next. God has declared his forever love. And we should be receiving of that love and giving it out to others. There's a whole lot that you could pick up on there, but we'll leave that to to the groups. But love is the, if you like, the cement that holds the bricks and the stones together. Uh, Peter uses this image, doesn't he? We are living stones and we're being built together. But we need something to hold us together and that is the love of God. So there's that, that cement that he puts in there as he lays one against to, against next to another, that love, the cement of the Holy Spirit. And note, we notice Paul's prayer there. We read it. It's right that I should feel this way about you. You have a special place in my heart. I pray that your love, verse 9, will overflow. So he wants them to have an overflow of love. Can you imagine what that would be like if we began to get an overflow of love? You know, if we just couldn't hold it back, if we, you know, I, I just love that. You know, when you come in this morning, you got half a dozen hugs or more. Yeah, that's one way of doing love. You know, giving a smile is a way of doing love as well. It's easy to frown, isn't it? But just giving a smile to somebody, just being a welcoming presence, just being an accepting person, an understanding person, 
He wants them to overflow in love. Love and grace. So you've got grace there. It's one of the things we go through when we do vision and values, but we have to keep reiterating it. You know, God's riches at Christ's expense. So you've got grace at the beginning. You've got grace at the end of this book. He he says grace to you, and at the end of it, it's grace to you. And then in the middle of it, chapter 3, he's got a big one on grace. It's kind of big time, right there, hits you in the face. And it's one of my my favourite chapters. If you just want to turn there, chapter 3. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things. I, I do it to, regard, to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. For we who, are, who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised, and in other words, the true people of God. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if, I, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their efforts, I got even more. I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I'm pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Wow, what a pedigree. And yet he says, it's rubbish. It means nothing to me. And then as he goes on and he says this, he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. I love the title they use in the New Living Translation here, The Priceless Value of Knowing Christ. Wow. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ, become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew the grace of God. We need to be continually rooted in the grace of God. That must be our culture, to be rooted deeply in the grace of God. It will save us from self-righteousness, from being judgmental, etc. We also need to remember that grace doesn't just simply save us, it changes us. It means we can say no to ourselves. It means we can say no to the world around us and no to the devil. It means that we, we can go on to discover everything that God has for us in Jesus, which is the next word, freedom. When the world thinks of freedom, it thinks of freedom without any sense of ownership or responsibility or accountability in any way whatsoever. That freedom does not exist. Only God has pure freedom. And the freedom that we have will either be one that serves the enemy or one that serves God. Read Romans. So we're either serving one or serving the other. 
And as Paul says in Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not simply to walk out of chains and say, hey, look, I'm free, as good as that may be. But it's a freedom to walk out of chains and into something. That's what we need to understand. So Paul has this aspiration here. He knows the grace of God, but he knows that it has not only uh, saved him and made him right, but it has given him power to enter into all that God has for him. So I want to know Christ. I want to experience the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I don't mean to say in verse 12 that I've already achieved all these things or, or, or I'm already reached perfection, but I press on. Brothers and sisters, we want a culture where everybody is pressing on. Yeah, there have been times when we're wounded, there'll be times when we need space and so on. But we want to see people getting to that place where they're saying, come on, let's press on. Let's move on to the next step. God has more for me. God has more for my marriage. God has more for my family. God has more for us as a church. But we need to press on. We won't get it by sitting here, just believing it. We need to take hold of God's promise, his prophetic word, and enter into it through the power of his spirit. So authentic Christianity, uh, Christian spirituality, really, according to Paul, has an aggressive quality to it. And, and, And I feel God wants to put some aggression into us. Yeah? There are people here that... The enemy has been too... You've allowed the enemy to knock you around too much. God wants to put some aggressive quality into your life. He wants to put some fight into you. He wants to make you a fighter for yourself and for others so that we can see more of this... so that you can have more of the kingdom and so that you can see the kingdom coming elsewhere. Staggering stuff, isn't it? So he has the pursuit of Christ, knowing Christ, identification with Christ, transformed into the likeness of Christ. We, we, say we, We. are assigned assigned. the task of creating creating. a kingdom culture in our church and then carrying that culture out into the world and so bring heaven's influence on earth. Amen? So the questions are, what does a culture of love, grace and freedom look like at Gateway? What does it look like in your home? What does it look like when you go into the world? When you are there at the school gates. What is it that you will exhibit to demonstrate something more of heaven coming to earth? Amen. That was a great kickoff. That was a great kickoff, Richard.